Today's episode of Well Actually is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think MMA tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the fight? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download GameTime in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last-minute tickets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Well, Actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. As usual, this is your host, Fernanda Prates, and I'm just going to come out and say that I lied to you. Well, not really, but maybe a little. I know I said we weren't going to be tied to event-related discussions and that the idea of this podcast was to step away from the news cycle. And, and it's still very much the idea. But I guess in some weeks, the news cycle just won't let us step away from it, will it? This is one of those weeks. I'll go over some of the aftermath of UFC Tampa, particularly the hard-to-watch affair between Mike Davis and Thomas Gifford, and the interesting-to-hear post-fight interview given by Davis and Figueiredo, or more specifically by his manager. I'll also discuss other manager-related incidents. You probably know what I'm talking about. And last, but certainly not least, I'll talk about this one depressing pattern that I spotted in just a few days of fight-related headlines and stories. I tried to come up with a snarky title for this one, but I couldn't. So I'll just go with stuff that's been happening, including but not limited to the one I wanted to write about on Sunday, but Ben folks claimed my idea and ruined everything, so here we are. Okay, so maybe I'll have to rethink that for the actual title. I guess I should just start with that last bit sense. It probably didn't make that much sense for anybody who isn't in my brain. Uh, on Saturday, UFC on ESPN Plus 19 took place in Tampa, Florida. And as usual, a couple of fights stood out. Some for better, some for worse. And we'll start with one that definitely stood out for worse. In the preliminary card, Mike Davis applied quite a beating on Thomas Gifford, who ended up knocked out in the final seconds of the bout. You probably know that by now, though. Because this was one of those rare stances in which the MMA community was able to come together and actually agree on something. That something is that that fight should not have gone on that long. Who carries most of the blame for that type of situation, though? That's when it gets a little less straightforward. I joked about Ben claiming my idea. And I mean unknowingly claiming it from my brain, by the way, because I hadn't brought it up to him or anyone else in my team. But I joked because I wanted to write about that for The Athletic on Sunday. I ended up writing about Mackenzie Dern instead. Well, about Dern and Serena Williams and Elizabeth Warren and Kylie Jenner. I swear it makes sense if you read it. It's there if you want to check it out. But yeah, in Ben's defense... A lot of people in MMA stole my idea. Of course they did, because we couldn't easily ignore it. I will address some of my peers's peers. Is that how you say it? English is weird. I don't know. Anyway, I will address some of their takes here, but hopefully I'm able to add some new insight of my own. Or maybe I'll just add more confusion and abstract reflection to it, which, let's just face it, it's kind of my thing. And if I don't add anything at all, well... I'll just be one more voice addressing something important that we need to be addressing more often. Like I said, 
there was a rare sort of consensus around this one. And other than the one-sided nature of the fight, which was, make no mistake, bad, but not necessarily the worst we've ever seen, I think it also had something to do with Michael Bisping's commentary. Because it's one thing when you have an outsider discussing these things, as in somebody who's never actually been in a cage fight. And it's quite another when you have not only a fighter who's been through it, but one who's really been through it. We know Bisping, who once held the UFC's middleweight title and is now retired, is definitely one of those guys. Just throw his name plus glass eye on Twitter and you have a very visual evidence. So you have Bisping basically pleading with the ref to quote-unquote man up and interfere, and then also addressing the role of Gifford's team there, while also talking about long-lasting damage, all in a very calm, respectful manner. And I think that's pretty great. It's one of the advantages of having a guy like Bispin on the booth, somebody with both the credential and the guts, really, to talk about this in a direct, unequivocal way. And I'll talk more about that shortly. MMA writer Ben Keeley, Keeley, am I saying this right? I should just give up on names altogether. Anyway, this Ben, who is in Folks, did a story for the Sports Daily in which he highlighted some of Bisping's quotes. Pretend I have a British accent, you know, credibility purposes. I mean, look at this. These are heavy blows bouncing his head all over the place like a pinball machine. The referee's got to be close to stopping that fight. His coaches have got to be close to thinking, you know what? Throw the towel in. Because for a young fighter, this is not a good thing to go through. It's going to take years off their career, potentially years off his life. That was hard to watch. Indeed, it was. It was bad enough that the ref, Andrew Glenn, was pulled from the remainder of the event. I don't recall many other times when that happened. One of the exchanges, well, the verbal ones anyway, that stood out for me during that fight was when Gifford sat on his stool before the third round and his coach, Mark Montoya, asked, how do you feel, buddy? Gifford answered, horrible. Montoya asked whether Gifford wanted to continue and Gifford answered, always. And so he did. He went back out there and ended up face planted right before the final bell. As the other Ben, folks, pointed out for The Athletic, if Gifford's corner had thrown in the towel, it would have been a very rare situation in MMA. Ben mentioned Nick Diaz doing that to save his brother. He mentioned coach Trevor Whitman telling Nate Marquardt that he was done. And he also mentioned another coach, Duke Rufus, who stopped Anthony Pettis' fight with Tony Ferguson. And I couldn't really remember, at the top of my head, any other examples. I could remember, though, examples of other times when we talked about fighters taking excessive damage. The fight between Rick Glenn and Gavin Tucker at UFC 215 comes to mind. One judge scored it 324 to Glenn, and UFC President Dana White tweeted that that ref needed his ass whooped after allowing it to go the distance. But another more high-profile example that came to mind was UFC 224 headliner between Raquel Pennington and champion Amanda Nunes here in Rio. The difference was that, in Pennington's case, she actually said something about quitting. She said in her corner that she was done. She was then told to change her mindset. So Pennington went back out there for her fifth round and proceeded to take damage before losing via TKO. Now, of course, the situation is also different considering that Pennington could have become champion that night. And that, had she been able to pull something out of her hat, which I'm sure is what she and her corners were hoping would happen when she got back out there, the conversation might have been different. But things happened the way that they did. 
and Pennington's Corner were immediately under fire. Absolutely understandable fire, by the way. But that's when people like me, who struggle with the voyeuristic guilt that comes with covering a sport like MMA, try to add some gray to all the black and white. I can't speak for the rest of my peers at all on this. I'm an overthinker to an extent that is just very unhealthy. But I do struggle with one thing in situations like these. I've never been a fighter. And I've never been a coach. And while that's not an argument that should stop me from addressing things, and it doesn't, obviously, I'm here, aren't I? There are situations when that is in the back of my mind. Because I try to put myself in their shoes, right? These people prepare themselves for months to get there. And of course, they are fighters, and they will feel like they have a fighting chance until the very end. And we don't really know their relationships with their corners. Another case I'll mention, Priscilla Cachoeira in that epic beatdown by Valentina Chevchenko. She was told by her corner, Giliard de Paraná, to shut up when she complained about pain on her knee, a knee that would later prove to be very much busted. She didn't do anything else in that fight. It didn't do her any favors. Still, she defended her coach by saying that people don't know their relationship and therefore can't judge. Pennington also defended her coach. She said she was glad that they didn't stop the fight, that she would have been, quote-unquote, devastated to have that towel thrown. And you can see where they're coming from, right? They wanted to go out on their shields because, of course, they did. You wouldn't be a cage fighter if you didn't have that mentality. But that's what I mean when I say that Bisping's insight on the Gifford situation was so valuable. Because he speaks from a place of somebody who's been there, who's seen it, and who, to this day, is having to live with the consequences of it. That's powerful for both the fan who's reading and watching and listening, but also for people like me, who often find themselves dwelling over the matter of agency. Meaning, I'm always a little worried about being condescending, of robbing fighters of their agency in there, as if they can't speak or decide for themselves. And also, this is an inherently violent sport, right? So when it comes to setting those limits and those boundaries, when it comes to deciding when these lines get crossed, it can be hard. The Gifford fight is a somewhat straightforward example in that it was very blatantly one-sided. But we've seen situations in which fighters came back from adversity to score improbable wins. And those fights and those combats are often labeled as awesome, brave, epic. So where do you draw the line? Had Gifford been able to somehow pull that one out of the hat, would the general narrative have been different? Would we have been as outraged? Don't worry, I'm not going to be one of those people that just explain why everyone is right or wrong or both and never takes a side. I'm explaining why I can sometimes be a little bit of a coward, but I'm also getting to why I can't always afford to be that way. Make no mistake, Gifford was failed that night. By both his corner, if you ask me, and certainly the referee. Even Davis, his opponent, was failed in a way. Davis had an extremely dominant performance and deserves all the credit for it. Yet, that's not the main storyline coming out of it, right? The focus is on the negative, as it should be, because the negative is just that important. But what can we do to make sure people get less failed moving forward? That's when the cliche that we and fighters themselves often use, uh, that they're too tough for their own good, comes in. Because that's exactly why we have commissions and referees and people in and around that cage, cornermen included, making sure that a fight happens in the safest way possible. You can't just rely on what the fighter says because they might be concussed or they might not have a full picture of how bad it is going for them 
or because they simply might not have it in them to express in those words in front of the entire world that they quit. And can you blame them? We've been around the sport long enough to know what happens. We've seen Jeremy freaking Stevens be called a quitter because the night poke ended a fight just a few weeks ago. Gifford, thankfully, has since said his fine and even made some interesting, I guess, Jesus comparisons on Twitter. But yeah, though he's fine now, it could have been worse. And there's no way of knowing what it might have done in the long run, not only to his body, but most importantly to his brain. David McGrath has a newsletter called The Fook with two O's. And he addressed the issue with refereeing and what he called a quote-unquote ring sign incompetence, involving, among other things, the responsibility to spot warning signs of concussions, which seems pretty basic, right? He wasn't just talking about this event. He also mentioned bare knuckles and the bout in Mexico between Stevens and Yeri Rodriguez. One thing he addressed specifically was how, and I quote, in Florida, the commission has only two older physicians they use that only do a few events a year that come to the Sunshine State. Would it not make more sense to have ringside doctors who are on the circuit all the time? He poses a few questions and reiterates what should be obvious, that we must do our jobs to hold referees and commissions accountable. But there's a less tangible and I believe tougher element to it as well, right? And of course, I had to bring it up. There's the culture. The mentality that makes all these calls so tough on a corner and borderline impossible on a fighter. When I talked about the Gifford fight on Twitter, I got a reply that said, and I quote, one thing we can do to help is provide an atmosphere in which a fighter is enabled to quit. And that's the dream, right? That's the ideal. That's what I would like to have happen and what I hope to help when I address the type of lame, annoying, abstract stuff that I so often talk about. But culture shifts don't just happen overnight. In the meantime, the best we can do is, yes, hold people accountable, take sides when sides need to be taken, and to keep having these conversations. Hopefully someone will listen. Now I'm just going to do a few quicker hits on the stuff that happened over the past few days. I'll start with one thing that might not seem like a huge deal, but that has always bothered me. Also in Tampa, we saw Brazil's Davison Figueiredo beat Tim Elliott, and then his post-fight speech happened. I made a joke about how his manager, Valides Mayu, who also acts like his translator, often does creative interpretations of what his athletes say. It's funny because Valige is funny, but this is a problem. Valige specifically, he always just makes stuff up and speaks on behalf of his athletes. Guy Cruz, my colleague at MMAfighting.com, pointed out that the post-fight scrum was all Valigi and very little Davison. And can you kind of spot the conflict of interest there? It's one thing to coach your fighter on what to say, which is reasonable, I guess. It's quite another to speak for them. I mean, if you want to interview the manager, by all means interview the manager. But then you have this strange theater going on. You're asking the fighter questions and you are virtually interviewing someone else. Can we at least drop the pretense? I have personally been in weird situations because of that. I'd have to write, say, a post-fight scrum story for MMA Junkie in which we had the video. But here's the thing. The video has the manager's audio, right? The manager's translation, which might not match what the fighter said. And then in the story, you'd have what the fighter actually said which I knew because I happen to also speak Portuguese, but the people doing the interview often often don't, hence the need for an interpreter. 
So, yeah, at the very least, it's a strange freaking situation. Now, we have other managers doubling as translators often in the UFC, and some of them do a great job. Uh, Eduardo Alonso does it for Damian Maia and Shogun, and he's actually very good and provides very faithful translations. Alex Davis is another example. He helps even with athletes that are in his zone and generally does a good job too. But you can't deny the reality of it, and that is that the managers have an interest of their own in this situation. They naturally want their fighters to come across as positively as possible, which, again, is entirely understandable, but I think you can see why that's not exactly ideal. And at the end of the day, even if some managers don't cross those lines and are able to keep things separate, they're just not professional interpreters. It's not just about malicious intent. Have you tried doing translation? It is hard. I know because I've had to do it a few times. And even though I speak both languages fluently, and I know the vocabulary of the sport, which is also important, it's still not enough. I mean, it's not all there is to it. There's technique, there's practice, there's study. This is like a serious job. And it's not just anyone that can go up there with a microphone and do it. Now, I understand the logistical challenges of having interpreters for every fighter, considering that the UFC has fights every week, basically, and that they have people from all over the world. This would for sure incur in some extra costs. But I guess, excuse me for not feeling all that bad about this rich company spending a little more money to have their athletes actually be heard. We're often talking about fighters showing their personalities and being able to connect with audiences, right? Communicating properly with them is part of that. Now, we can use the lazy argument that they should just learn English. And yeah, that would be ideal. But guess what? Learning a second language is kind of hard. It takes time. And most importantly, it takes resources. In Brazil, particularly, these are often people who come from difficult backgrounds, who sometimes they didn't have a chance to like, finish school. Fighting was their way out and what they poured their time and their energy into. And it's also, I don't know if you've noticed, a pretty tough gig. So instead of placing the burden on them, I just personally prefer to see the UFC make it a little easier. Even if it's not possible to have interpreters for all the cards, at least maybe do it for the most high-profile ones, or the ones that feature a lot of Brazilians or Russians or Spanish speakers, or, you know, just a considerable amount of people from the same country. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that this wouldn't be the thing to bankrupt them. And speaking of managers and conflicts of interest, I'll just briefly touch on the whole battle of the managers that took place at PFL this past Friday. We know that there was a situation with Ali Abdelaziz and Abe Kawa. MMA Junkie first reported it, and they have since published an update saying that, according to the police, Abdelaziz hit Kawa, quote-unquote, in his face with a closed fist. Look, I don't have a lot to add to the discussion that's already been happening. I just think that I had to mention it because we can't keep acting like this is normal. I was alarmed by how I didn't even bat an eyelash when I read about it. It felt, you know, expected, considering not just the specific history between Abdelaziz and the Kawas, but also Abdelaziz's own history in the sport and just the history of MMA, I guess. And maybe we should stop acting like it's normal. What I'll do today is recommend some of the stuff that my peers have published on this. 
the MMA Junkie reports, of course, uh, to read more about the altercation specifically. Uh, Steven Morocco has published a story on MMAfighting.com. The title is Manager Ali Abdelaziz Faces Two Separate Battery Charges in Las Vegas. The story mentions previous physical altercations that Abdelaziz has been involved in, including one with welterweight Kobe Covington, for which Abdelaziz is facing the other battery charge. The story includes a statement by PFL in which they say they are continuing to gather information on the incident with Kawa. Whether that will turn into action, we'll see, but that's when yet another piece that came out last week comes in. Michael Fidel, again, probably butchering it, uh, of the body log, he published a story detailing Abdelaziz's disturbingly close relationship with the PFL and, of course, its predecessor, WSOF. The title is Ali Abdelaziz and the PFL's Extraordinarily Controversial Past and Present. If you want to go check it out, it's a good read to catch up on a conflict of interest that we know has always been there, but that it's becoming harder and harder to ignore and just chalk up to MMA being MMA. Leslie, well, let me just go over a few of the stories that I have stumbled on over the past few days, and you let me know if you spot a pattern. Famous Irish sports star accused of sexual assault in car near Dublin pub. That's a headline by the Irish Mirror. The story doesn't name the sports star, but it does say that this is the same person who is being investigated for the alleged rape of a woman at a Dublin hotel in December of 2018. And, as we know, the New York Times published a story back in March, saying that Conor McGregor was under investigation for sexual assault for an alleged incident that happened at a hotel in Dublin in December 2018. Then, another case. Just this Sunday in Brazil, a show called Fantástico on Globo aired a story about two women who accused a boxing coach of rape. The coach is Edivan Conceição, who's trained fighters like Anderson Silva and Junior Dos Santos in the past. The women, who were aspiring boxers, said the abuse took place after they entered a social project where Conceição taught, which belonged to the Nogueira brothers. Both women were underage at the time that the alleged crimes took place. Now, Rogério Nogueira spoke to Global for the story. He was very stern, and he made it very clear that Conceição was no longer part of their team. Conceição, via his lawyer, said in a statement that the story isn't true and that he didn't commit the crime. So that's where we stand with that. The investigation is ongoing. Then, just yesterday, Monday, I was sent a link to a series called Voices of the Math by Brazilian website UOL. The series publishes first-person accounts from women, current and former athletes, who have suffered violence or sexual abuse while practicing martial arts. I just read the latest one, from Corina Gracie, Elio Gracie's granddaughter. In it, she says she was assaulted by not one, but two different jiu-jitsu players she was in relationships with. She didn't name them, but she did say one of them also fought MMA. After he hurt her finger, Gracie says, she reported him to the police, mentioning previous physical assaults and threats. That was in 2014, and she says she has yet to hear back from the police. She talked not only of the assaults, but also of the silence around them. Just this next Friday, we'll watch Greg Hardy compete at UFC on ESPN 6. I dedicated last week's episode to talking about Hardy, who was accused and at one point convicted of assaulting his ex-girlfriend. 
We're also discussing the return of former UFC title challenger Anthony Johnson, whose own past with domestic violence is well documented, but not all that well addressed by the UFC. Just a couple of days ago, Brave FC released what they say is the lineup for an open weight tournament. Among the names there, people like Alexander Emelianenko, whose rap sheet includes a two-year prison stint for rape. And also Josh Copeland, who earlier this year pled guilty to second and third degree assault in a domestic abuse incident. Those are just some of the things that I read over these past few days. I mentioned a lot of them with, with reportedly and allegedly, because in some of them we don't have people who have actually been charged with crimes. We don't have certainty of the people we're talking about. There's due process. These are serious accusations, and of course, they have to be reported on and discussed responsibly. Not to mention, of course, all the limitations that come with the legal statuses of some of them. But even if you don't go into the detail of each case, look at the sheer volume of them. Look at how all these alleged events happen in different corners of the globe at different times to different people. But look at who the alleged perpetrators usually are and who the alleged victims usually are. We know women can do harm, and we know men can be harmed, but what is the pattern? Now imagine what it's like being a woman who has to be constantly online for work, and who therefore has to be constantly flooded with these stories. Doesn't it look a little overwhelming to you? Wouldn't it make you feel like sometimes maybe your surroundings are just a little hostile? I can't say that this is an exclusive MMA problem, because it isn't. Just this month in Brazil, we saw goalie Bruno, who was convicted of murdering the mother of his child and feeding her body to dogs, return to soccer with all the pomp and circumstance. But yeah, this is a problem. And I can't speak on behalf of every woman in the sport, because I'm just me, but I can speak on behalf of myself. And yeah, it does feel overwhelming. Anyway, this is a heavy subject that I wish I didn't have to, but I know that I will have to revisit in the future. For now, though, I'll just leave you with that reflection. I hope you liked this week's episode. If not, I'll get a chance to make it up to you next week on Tuesday when I return for another round of MMA and other stuff. <laughs>